Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 103. Speak and Destroy is the first podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Wes Hotch, guitarist for Alluvial. Wes is a former member of The Faceless. He's also played with Black Crown Initiate, was the touring guitarist for Thy Art is Murder, and is, of course, a huge Metallica fan. Alluvial was signed to Nuclear Blast by my friend and A&R legend, Monty Connor. It's responsible for signing a lot of your favorite Roadrunner bands back in the day, including Slipknot, and a whole bunch of bands since he's been at Nuclear Blast for the last few years. Wes's band features Kevin Muller, who used to be in Suffocation. Uh, a little bit of a technical death metal supergroup. Wes is a very intelligent, experienced an insightful guy, and of course, a ripping metal guitar player. In this wide-ranging, in-depth conversation, we talk about bands and their fan bases, a little bit about the music business, and of course, a lot of Metallica. At one point, Wes even puts on his guitar while he's explaining some things to me about uh, various mysteries and puzzles regarding the band's tuning over the years, and plays some Metallica riffs and licks. You can actually see the video version of that taken from this episode on the Speaking Destroy YouTube channel. You can subscribe to Speaking Destroy on YouTube. You can also support us on Patreon, where you get access to bonus episodes pulled from my interview archives with folks like Glenn Danzig, Kirk Hammett, Randy Blythe, JD from The Sword, and many more. You can subscribe to the whole Pop Curse channel or just Speaking Destroy on Apple Podcasts. And a big, big thing you can do to support is to leave a five-star rating and write a nice review in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform of choice. You can find Speaking Destroy on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. And if I haven't said it in a while, this theme music you're about to hear was written, performed, recorded, and mixed by the great Scott Mellinger of the band Zayo. So here it is, my conversation with Wes Hotch of Alluvial. This is Speak and Destroy. I did Rob Flynn's podcast, which I think was the week after you did. We went for like three hours. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, there's um I listened to a few of them this morning. I listened to the one with Chad, James's tech, and yeah. a few other ones. And um yeah, it's 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 such a cool and deep dive. And I mean, um, in addition to that, like I guess just being 
deeply aware of like all of the things that you've done over the last uh you know 20 years and like the bands that you've managed and also your time at mtv and i don't know if you know this but like i was in a band called the faceless and uh the leader of the band rented your sprinter one time and then we got uh yes um, it broke down in in groom texas for about oh i definitely remember that <laughs> it broke down i mean i think we were there for maybe like six days total until um until they sent out someone in like just a regular e350 to come and get us but um yeah. i i um when i was doing this i was like i hope that he doesn't think that we broke his sprinter or i broke his sprinter but oh, yeah wow. that was, that's I mean, that's that's amazing because on the well i guess that speaks to both of our character relative to a lot of people in the music business because on my end i was panicking about how much the band must hate us <laughs> because the sprinter broke down yeah i mean it was one of those things that i'm sure could have been remedied uh in uh, a ton of other ways it was probably just you know a someone just not kind of like problem solving as quick as we could and i remember that uh like when we showed up to the first show which was the williamsburg i think the, the place in brooklyn you know what i mean like it, uh -huh. was, it was it was dillinger and uh royal thunder and i remember feeling like such a dummy you know what i mean like showing up to you know like a dillinger tour five six days late i mean and just well you know. and i and i felt bad because i was managing dillinger at the time yeah yeah like, um yeah your support band's not there because they're in my broken down sprinter <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i uh they they were very nice all things considered um yeah and i remember you guys were very very cool about it too yeah and that was honestly that experience was the end of the sprinter rental business for us because um, i mean the biggest problem was that in terms of the the perfect storm of circumstance is that you guys broke down in like literally the middle of nowhere like yeah. a town that was like population 500 or whatever and so there was only one guy in town that guy milked that repair for so many weeks no choice because it was like it would have cost as much as we spent with him to have it towed to the nearest reputable place. Like we tried like all these options and, and, and part of the reason why you guys were stuck there so long. And then the van was stuck there so long was this guy telling us, uh, Oh yeah, it's going to, you know, waiting for this part. It's in tomorrow. going to have it running tomorrow. And it was like that game every day until we finally just had to call it. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, if if I had had your number or had a closer relationship with you that time, yeah. I would have been like, I would have been like, get someone to tow this out of here immediately. Immediately, like, because yeah. because dude, like, I actually drove through there. It's at the you know, it's you're you're passing at the like the kind of top square part of Texas, um, uh -huh. and uh, it's right past Amarillo and Groom is this area that seems kind of frozen in time. There's a Dairy Queen and then there's like, you know, a couple of miles in, there's like a general sort of like grocery store. And yes, I think you're right. There's probably something like six, six to 800 people yeah. um, max. And that dude's mechanic shop is just 
right there off the highway and he's the only fucking guy that is yeah. there to to fix a vehicle problem it's like horror movie style like uh you know like catch a spider catching the fly in the trap for that guy <laughs> oh yeah i'm sure if you went and looked at it on google maps you were probably like oh my god like yeah. <laughs> i have to just go and get this thing out of here as soon as possible Dude, and, yeah. was, and to give you the short version of uh you know, so basically this buddy of mine and I, you know, I was looking at what Bandigo does and Bandwagon and all those companies, and there really isn't anything comparable on the West Coast. So I was like, you know, yeah, there's an opening here. We could start a West Coast version of this business. And the deal was with my buddy and I was, you know, he's going to be the administrative dude. He put together like the business plan. He opened the bank account. He got the financing. And I was going to be the guy that knew bands. I mean, we made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> but the first was the first sprinter that we bought, which wasn't the one you guys were in, was one of the ones that's a little shorter. And then the whole thing was just tighter inside than we realized. And actually, All Show Parish went out in that. That one broke down, but just for like a day, but it broke down during the first tour. Tilla, one of those bands went out in it. It broke down on them. On a piece of paper, the business sounds so simple. But then once real life happens, you know, so the sprinter you guys were in was when we were like, okay, we got to buy a new one, spare no expense. We're going to get in this big auto loan and we're going to um, spend 20 grand with oh, the legit dude who does the build outs for Bandigo to have it built out and be really nice and fancy inside. So we got that second sprinter and sending it out with the faceless was like its maiden voyage. Really? <laughs> and then it broke down. <laughs> Yeah, and from what I understand, those Mercedes, because um, I think they're diesel. There's they're not a... made to tour, and that's the thing that no, I don't. I think the only way that Bandigo succeeds is just sheer volume. They have so many vans, and so many hubs, and so many bands in them that when they break down, because I had band, you know, Demon Hunter went out in a Bandigo once, and it broke down like two days in, and it was raining, and water started leaking in through the roof and like got on people's laptops and whatever. And the flip side is that Bandigo had another sprinter, you know, 90 minutes away, like from wherever we were that they just sent another one out. And for us with just having the two and I was pushing my business partner, like, I was like, dude, it's going to be warp tour this summer. We have both sprinters booked. Um, if we can get over this hump and get them out and get through Warp Tour, we will actually be in the black. And he was just like, dude, I can't, you know, his argument, which was probably not incorrect, was it's just more good money after bad. He's like, because, yes, that would work. But if Warp Tour starts and one or both of these break down, we're going to be even way more in the hole than we are now. So um, we just cut our losses after the the sprinter in texas debacle sold that sprinter to a buddy of ours and i spent the next two years writing a check to my business partner every month <laughs> until we oh wow <laughs> yeah, yeah that's brutal um it was one of those like it yeah it seemed like just even just the repair part of it was gonna be a uh, with that specific guy was going to yeah. be a good money after a uh, bad type. Of and it took us a minute to realize that, unfortunately. And he was the only game in town, you know, and I think he realized that 
much quicker than we did. Yes, yes. And our thing was like, we can't make any money to pay you until we get the band back on the road, you know? Yeah, it was, man, it was our headache. We had a cool name. We had a cool logo. I think it's a cool idea. But the other thing is that in all the years of doing this and working with touring bands and whatever, everybody's always got a scheme that's like, oh, what if we get an RV? What if we do this? Everybody's always trying to like outwit the tour bus lifestyle. And the sad reality, I think, is that that business is the way that it is because that's just the way it has to be. Crazy you have to have this layered infrastructure of repair people and yes. stuff like that all over the place. And that's costly. And that just takes a whole lot of time. So, yeah, I mean, and I that's why it. they charge so much. I mean, it sucks how much a tour bus costs, but then on the flip side, like even just having that small window into it, running the two sprinters for a year, like they're taking on so much risk. We had a band get into an accident with one of the sprinters. Um, with some oh, really? Kid, some kid that they hired to drive ran a, a four-way stop and wrecked one of the sprinters and we had to pay to like rent another van i think from bandigo for them to get in and then deal with repairing the one there and deal with the person that the kid t-boned the faceless in gloom groom texas was uh that was the like straw that broke the camel's back for my business partner where he was just like that i dude we can't well how should we start talking about metallica there's so many different ways we there can... are so many different ways uh, yeah. my, my way in is generally i i like to talk about were there musical people in your family what was their music around the house you know what was the first stuff you fell in love with in addition to that what was the first moment where you were like okay this isn't just something i love this is something i need to participate in I'll try to make the 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 beginning of this condensed so we can get to the Metallica part. But I was talking to Flynn. Uh, I was on one of Flynn's podcast about this mm-hmm. the other day, and like um, I was born in '82, so um, by the time I was like, you know, as you go when you're eight or in between the ages of eight and ten is when you kind of branch off and find your music, and it's not just your parents' music, you know. Although that yeah, like. Yeah. Um, there was some there was some great stuff that uh my parents introduced me to with um elton john and um you know like the beatles and uh john lee hooker stevie ray vaughn and all that other stuff a lot of it was like guitar bass but around the turn of the decade there is when you had nirvana pearl jam soundgarden uh alice in chains and then those were all pretty guitar dominant things. So that was kind of my entry point, you know, and a lot of that stuff had a lot of uh, things that would sort of walk someone into metal. For instance, like 4th of July, that song on um, Super Unknown, it's drop C, just really, really like kind of heavy, scary sounding Mm -hmm. guitar, at least it was when I was a kid. So naturally, is you dig into stuff like that more um you're wanting to know like who's going gnarlier with this you know yeah, what i yeah. mean who's yeah. who's playing sick or not like how's like where does this go and um i stayed at a friend's house over the summertime who had pretty much everything that you would um want as far as an introductory experience to metal when um I guess, you know, like, you know, it was all of the Sepultura records that existed at the time. So I think we were up to um, Chaos AD and then um, 
all the Metallica records that exist. And, and this is around the time that uh, it was like 94, 95. So like Load was not quite out yet, you know, but yeah, um, yeah. and then all these Pantera records. So, yeah, that was my first experience. And you got to dive into like a bunch at once. It wasn't just like, here's one or two bands. Like <laughs> it was. Yeah, well, yeah, because you, yeah, you, you had. Yeah. You had I was I was I was trying to explain this to someone the other day because you're aware of the real book which is a um it's like a it's a book of published songs that are almost like a a, a guide to how to play jazz. You know what I mean? There's all these standards in it like Cherokee Blue Bossa um and if there were the equivalent to that for heavy metal guitar certainly without a doubt all of the first the four or five Metallica records would be in that book. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was this glossary of the Metallica stuff. And then at the time, kind of the earlier kind of crossover. I mean, because at this time, you know, Sepultura was pushing it to a point where like people were kind of calling Sepultura a death metal band, you know, like it was um, that was kind of my first entry point to that level of extremity and then like pantera and all that other stuff too so there was probably then probably then was when i was like oh yeah oh this is what i want to do so um the following years you had a bunch of i had i had a, a, a good amount of stuff to backtrack on right because you had um the binge and purge stuff mm -hmm. you know what i mean like yeah, the yeah. seattle and mexico shows and then there was a san diego show you had um a couple years later you had slayer live intrusion which was a big one for me then the pantera home videos and then that euthanasia documentary that megadeth did yeah that studio in um arizona and stuff yeah. and yeah that was all of the stuff right there i guess in that from probably let's say 92 to like 96 or 97 where i was like oh yeah i'm putting all of my chips on this table because <laughs> like it was uh it had everything that could capture my imagination because it was it was it was for metallica being a participant in like my dad's blues music there was crossover mm -hmm. with that you know what i mean like in metallica sort of solos yeah. and everything and um and even was, classical cats talk about how metallica songs are structured with this like epic sort of you know orchestral start to finish peaks and valleys middle and end and all that stuff yes i was thinking about this too there's a one of my favorite comedians he had a quote recently where he said like the highest form of the art for stand-up comedy is doing it in a room with two to three hundred people and i started thinking about how that would apply to being a metal band and i was like you know that's really kind of carries over because there which, are which, which comic was that by the way Tim Dillon. Oh, right on. Because, yeah, because I'm, I'm like music movies, stand-up comedy. Yeah, um, yeah, right, yeah. 33, 33, as far as my passions in life. No, I got you. I'm, I'm, I feel similarly. Um, I think that I was trying to explain, I was, I was relating it to um, metal, and I started just kind of examining that there are tons of Instagram accounts that are like, you know, my, metallica 80s metallica or whatever and it's like a, a collection of pictures that are just only from this era yeah and um like it, it's hard to remember a time where they weren't playing sheds or um stadiums you know what i mean because mm -hmm. they're 
they rise, but like there is this snapshot of time that people celebrate deeply because they're looking at these dudes, like maybe some of them have acne and they're kind of like, you know, hung over and they just look like badass, angry young men. And like in some way, I guess I get it because like, you know, these dudes were out there like really pounding the pavement as young men and like in, in sort of less than ideal conditions that they would later kind of tour under. Right. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that first tour with Raven, they were in an RV. We were talking earlier about how RVs are not made for touring. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, uh, yeah. Prime example. And I was like, maybe that's why people celebrate these types of eras of bands because they're like, yep, this is when they had the magic. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that because I think for, Metallica and Slayer, any band that's had like a 35 and up your career, like they have several different primes. So it's mm -hmm. kind of, it's hard to pick one, but um, yeah, there's, there's something about people like romanticizing a certain era, like, man, that's when they were the shit. And um, I love I this topic, by the way. And in almost a hundred episodes, I don't think we've explored it enough. It gets brushed over once in a while, but this is a, a great place where you've, you've brought us because, you know, and I think part of it to your point is the, the magic or the romanticism, the mythology that happens around the formative period, you know, as a storyteller, as somebody who has tried to capture the arc and, and look for narratives in histories of bands and so on, you know, I always point to the behind the music episode on Megadeth where you're at like the 20 minute mark before Dave Mustaine has even been fired from Metallica because you're talking about his childhood and his influences and, you know, and then the couple of years he's in Metallica and all those songs that came as a result of that and how much they changed the world and that style of guitar playing that, you know, Hetfield and Mustaine came up with. And, but the problem is then you're doing this disservice to where now you've only got 20 something minutes left to blow through peace cells and rust and peace and countdown and you know it's like so yeah like you said not only are there all these different peaks but there's something about those formative years where you know on the one hand you'll you'll hear james or lars say for example about like a mustang like you know the guy was only in the band for a couple of years and that's true but then on the flip side it's also like yeah but those were such important formative uh transformative meaningful years setting the stage for what's to come or you could say the same thing about like kirk and exodus like you know he's barely he was barely in exodus he's not even on bonded by blood the first record but then you also go yeah but he started the band he taught gary holt how to play power chords how to hold a guitar pick like you know what i mean like he like was like a leader a trailblazer of thrash metal in the bay area so on the one hand yeah you can look at a piece of paper and go well kirk's just a blip in the exodus history but you also can't talk about the history of Exodus without that tiny, tiny moment in time being so important to literally all the way up to what they're doing now. So yeah, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of reasons why certain periods get romanticized, but it is often at the, to the detriment and, and, and doing a huge disservice to so many other important things that are just as worthy of celebration. Yeah. Um, the, other part of it too that maybe certain people latch on to because it seems like at one point Metallica had superseded the need for traditional music press at the time to 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 expand 
um, their fan base because from what I understand, right? Um, I mean, if I'm getting this correctly, they hadn't really become, I mean, sure, one was their first music video, but they weren't MTV darlings by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but were still playing arenas and um yeah, they weren't getting any kind of radio other than college stations and specialty and, and stuff like that yeah and justice was the first real mainstream-ish quote-unquote breakthrough but it was also one of those situations where it wasn't so much the band becoming mainstream as it was the mainstream coming to the band because yeah it was it could no longer really be ignored yeah which is incredible and i mean i guess when you look back at that there were probably a whole lot of people who felt like their favorite band, their back pocket band was massive and it sort of conquered against all odds, but were still kind of a secret in a weird way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know that that's, that's a, that's a poor way to characterize it because they were definitely not a secret, but um, yep. you know, they weren't uh, like Kurt Loder wasn't, I don't think, you know, doing these large exposés on Metallica or going and talking, you know, like doing these, these segments on MTV about the, uh, the Metallica gig that was coming into town. That was a couple years later. And then naturally it seemed appropriate that once MTV put their chips down on it, that, um, they were as far as I could tell, like every type of run that they did, including the summer, summer sanitarium stuff, when did you end up starting to work for MTV? Was it like sort of late 90s, mid 90s? Uh, uh, 2000, actually, October 2000. Definitely still glorious years, though, right? You know what I mean? That was like the turn of the century. Like, you know, um, the they'd been there for all of it, too. Like, that's, that's the odd thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, Kid Rock, yeah. like, you know, years prior that shit hits the sheds tour. Like, I mean, I guess you had like faith no more and at one point or another white zombie being support acts but then you know like still remaining a very big band and they're like well we need kind of like to change it up and like see what types of new support acts are out there let's try out this dude kid rock <laughs> and fucking yeah and i mean and there was even uh prior to that towards the end of the black album cycle where they took out danzig and suicidal and, yeah yeah um, you know they were always you know coc yeah, and then putting together, they've always put together bills that have been both uh, tools of discovery for smaller, cooler happening bands that they personally like, you know, all the way down to bands that have never even left their home country, to bands that are relevant, that are that are sort of, you know, I mean, there was that tour that they put together that had like System of a Down and, <laughs> you know, like all these bands as they were like on the ascent they've always been very smart almost without fail about their decision making with uh, putting those bills together and another thing that's exciting and interesting about it is that they don't need to you know when they a few years ago took out avenge sevenfold and gojira you know two large bands in the metal world and i think volbeat was on some of those shows another big band like those shows weren't any bigger than they would have been without support even being announced in a lot of cases those shows sell out before the support's even announced you know which is it's so it's cool that they even do that when they don't really have to anymore 
but yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is how it works, especially once you've gotten to that where you're putting that many assets in seats, you're not really working with the traditional promoter type of situation. Like Metallica rents the arena or the Rose Bowl or whatever, and 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 are also renting the staff and the concessions and shit like that. It's like it, it's not like your typical, you know, your booking agent is getting a promoter to you know put a show at this spot it's a different it's a different right. type of negotiation yeah it is a, a whole different thing and i off and i and i would assume even that when you're at that level that you're getting a cut of parking and you know every little bit that's coming through there and you're also employing a lot of people and um you know these are like morning and night operations in terms of the the teardowns and all that but yeah and to your point about that thing where even as they became massive, you know, biggest album of the SoundScan era, um, you know, certainly the biggest hard rock or metal band on the planet consistently year after year, even in recent history, you know, I got to go to the Grammys where when they performed with Lady Gaga and it's like, even there, uh, Laverne Cox introduces them and during both rehearsal, uh, from what I'm told, and then the actual show where I'm sitting there, she forgets to say Metallica. She's, she introduces Lady Gaga, doesn't say Metallica, and then Hetfield's mic isn't working. <laughs> you know, and it's like, so even in even at the, the peak of what they've achieved and all of the respect and acclaim and the Grammys and the Diamond album and the multi-platinum records, the whole organization that they employ, um, even with all of that, still somewhere like the Grammys, the the ma most mainstream of mainstream, there's still an otherness, you know, they're still like, they're still not, they're not with the like jocks and cheerleaders, you know, like they're right, right. like kind of dissed and dismissed or, or overlooked. And that's sort of fascinating just in terms of not just the band, but culture in general. And, and how that all plays out with certain eras of theirs even some that are you know like at a glance you know what i mean if you were at if you were in a group of people and you were kind of just going to talk about which eras of metallica were celebrated less than others mm -hmm. you'd probably you you know you would probably talk about like the 2003 era and to even to some degree despite like a overwhelming commercial success you would talk about the load records like maybe they they were a shift but like i've, I've maintained this for a while if you listen to gojira um like there's a big part of those records from like even from mars to sirius there's a song called uh like the world something i forget i'll have to look up the name but it's like one of the late but it has like this kind of telecaster b-bender part that is like very reminiscent production wise and everything of the load records and i was just like dude it's really crept in i mean to so many different bands that um yeah you know have you know probably some of these bands newer listeners have no idea like what uh like what um low man's lyric ended up doing to a gojira song you right know? Like, right and 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 you know i think a lot of that is generational for better or worse because just the other day one of my friends made a joke about how no there hasn't been anything good since the black album and i pointed out to him 
that there's a huge portion of the of the fan base that believes the black album was awful and that that was their big commercial sellout and you know so on and so forth and um and you started like fighting me on that and it's like dude the passionate way that you were defending the black album like it's like you kind of can't see outside of your own bubble you know and a lot of it is time place and circumstance like where were you when you discovered the band what was the era of the band what was your gateway into it and it it kind of robs some fans of a certain objectivity because you can go all the way back and you know there were people when ride the lightning came out that were like this isn't as fast and pissed and raw as kill them all this is too polished this is a ballad on it you know so it's like every step of their career there's been some element of like oh this isn't as good as the other stuff as happens with every band as you know yourself from a being a professional musician but what happens generation generationally is that the record that is like the bad one that's not as good as the as the great ones by the time there's more records coming out that one retroactively gets kind of retconned to being a great record you know so it's like sometimes it's just a matter of time before a record that everyone supposedly hates is then coveted and treasured a couple records later and then a band finds themselves putting out a new album and people saying they wished it was like the record two records ago. And it's like, yeah, but that one two records ago, you said you hated at the time. Now you're saying you wish we would go back to that. Yeah, it's a special spot to be in. There's a few people um, that I like talk to. For what it's worth, also, I just looked it up just for anyone that's checking out it. It's song is called World to Come. It's off of Mars, a series. And if you listen to the front part of that song, you're going to be like, wow, this sounds like a song that could be on load. But yes, I tend to agree. The pontificators out yes. there, you know, like that part is in, as it's an essential part of the, the fan ecosystem, kind of like when you look at ant hills and they have like these fungus gardens, you know what I mean? And they bring like leaves and shit down there and they're <laughs> gassing it out so they can make food. I think it's this, it, it, it behaves so much like that in the fan world. And granted in 1990 and below, I guess really, um, you know, before metal had really kind of just gotten on the internet and that's how people were finding out about it. There weren't comment sections, but like Joe Rogan was even saying, that he's been pressuring Spotify to add comments sections to the podcast because it's an essential part of people feeling like they're participating, whether or not they they have anything worth a fuck to say. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, can I can I curse? Yeah, you can. And and oftentimes it won't be valuable, but just like the 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 visible public discourse on stuff. I mean, it was it was and and um it was a I think a big big part of why Lamb Goat was so popular. Although oh, I know for sure. number one stuff. reason. Yeah. That was that was the thing. Like, like very few people were like, "Oh, here's some fucking Acacia Strain tour dates." They were like, "Oh man, I want to see some people talk shit in the comments." Yeah, and section. you would always see on Lamb Goat. It used to show you. I think it still does actually. The the v- number of views that an individual story would get, and I would always point that out to bands when they would be like, "Oh man, Lamb Goat posted our tour dates, and there's like 40 kids, and you know they want our van to flip over and and whatever." And I'm like, "Yeah, but." there's 40,000 views. So out of those 40,000 people that were just like, cool tour dates, haha, hilarious comment section. You know, there's only 40 of them that were like, ah, hate, 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 die, die, die. You know, so it's important to keep that perspective. Sometimes there was some shit in there was so funny that I felt like, you know, you know how like comedians, 
end up like they work out their bits over time because they yes. want to see what yeah. crap is so hard. There were sometimes I felt like there were dudes in there that were like working on bits, like and just seeing workshopping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and Lambgoat has a podcast now, and it's called the Van Flip Podcast. And it's Perfect. like, yeah, like how amazing is it that Van Flip became like a certain lingo where if you know about this certain culture on the internet in a certain moment in time, you get the joke and the reference. Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you are going to make art um, and you want it to hopefully capture the imaginations of, of, of people that are not just in your hometown, you know, you are going to just have to deal with the court of public opinion. And dude, no one has taken more fucking hits than Metallica, really. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, certainly there's some bands who've gone through some rough patches and stuff, but like, you know, I, I was, I was watching your, um, I didn't get through all of it, but just kind of watching some of the, uh, the beginning of your Phil Toll episode and talking about how, despite how, difficult it is to watch some of that stuff like the mm -hmm. just fucking huge balls you had to do to like to have to be able to put your van in that vulnerable of a spot you know what i mean um because yeah. yes i mean there's going to be a litany of people who say this that and the other thing about it but i mean um well, you know from being in bands like that you also how many of us watched that or even you know marriages or you know businesses or whatever how many people watched that and were like oh i see i recognize things that are happening in here you know i'm not the drummer of metallica and i don't own you know a multi-million dollar collection of art but i can 100 percent relate to you know this person's relationship with this person and this situation and these worries and this concerns and like there was a very relatable i think uh, by peeling the curtain back like that, you know, it's almost like the particular profession that they're in was window dressing. Like that documentary really became about like people just dealing with each other, you know, having to depend on one another and, and the, the blessing and a curse that that can be. And there's that one quote, which I'm sure you're aware of where Lars says that like, um, you know, particularly the Napster segment where he's sitting there, there's a lot of times where I feel like, you know, I have my guys, I've got Hammond, I've got Headfield, and I can just fire back at the press and be like, fuck you and all this. But then there's moments where he felt really vulnerable, where he felt like, well, Jesus Christ, I mean, like has, has been, has, has being the guy who chose to take a stance on this been worth the the like the the scrutiny that i've come under and then i mean i think i saw a thing like maybe few years ago where it was like a picture or it was like a shirt that james was holding up and he had, was like making a goofy face that said lars was right on it you yeah know I mean? yeah and, uh josta makes those shirts too <laughs> he sells oh. them on his website yeah <laughs> and like, well, yeah I mean, there's, <laughs> there's something about two um yeah, he's proud of the fact that they've been able to grow up in the public eye and I guess develop. Yeah. And, uh, I fucking totally get that because there's very few people in the world that would ever be able to relate to it and or give them advice about stuff because they've been at the tip of the fucking spear forever. And, um, you know, like with, for instance, 
that CMJ video during Puppets era, um, where they go in and um, they're talking on the phone and stuff. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. News and everything. Yeah. And they interview that uh, their TM, that Bobby guy, I forget his last name. They interview him, and he's saying that the average age of all the guys at that point was about twenty-two or twenty-three years Insanity. old. Yeah, Insanity. Yeah. <laughs> to think that, to think that, yeah, you've got three records under your belt right then that are just fucking nuclear. And then the other surprising thing about it is how well-spoken all of them are for yeah. their age group. Because, dude, when I was 23 years old, sometimes I think about it like I, I was, uh, I don't know that I had a, a anything worthwhile to say, you know? And they, <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and especially Cliff, like one way that we're able to, of course, you know, when someone with that kind of charisma and talent and mystique about them leaves us so early, uh, or like a Stevie Ray Vaughan, who you mentioned earlier, you know, a bunch of people we could name, uh, Kurt Cobain, you know, Hendrix, like they, they didn't, they didn't have an opportunity to fail in front of us, you know, to grow up and, and get embarrassing or do something kind of lame we're robbed a little bit of the totality and the fullness of some of those people because they leave us so soon. And that allows some romanticizing, you know, and for every Metallica fan, this is oh, cliff would hate this, that they did, or they would hate this, that they did. It's like, you have no freaking idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we don't know. We don't know what a Cobain would have done. I assume that a lot of these people would have continued to do cool, exciting, creative, challenging things, but by no means would they have done things that everyone would love and agree with, you know, they're humans, you know, but when they leave us so, so early, but yeah, but the, what made me think of that is because yeah, when you think about them in that moment, I think about Cliff in that moment a lot. Uh, and yeah, he was just so well-spoken. And so, and, and, and you hear, even when you hear the rest of the guys talk about Cliff, even today as these, you know, grown ass adult parents and, you know, with everything they've accomplished, they all talk about Cliff with this sort of reverence about, you know, they looked up to the guy, you know, even people with as powerful and larger personalities as James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich, they both like looked up to Cliff Burton, you know, he had like a, uh, just a commanding sort of, and I would say calming kind of center, you know, you could tell that that guy was in a way that wasn't dickish was just was very confident about him you know like knew who he was and what he was about and whatever and you know and yeah it, it's it's inspiring to see that in all of them newstead you know all of them back then like how just determined they were and, and are and I, I think to to go back to something that you brought up like part of the all the hits that they've taken is that when you are that courageous as creative artists, you're going to fail or disappoint people or, or make people angry. If you're constantly challenging yourself and trying new things and building upon what the whole thing is, it's going to bring, it's going to invite new people. It's going to alienate old people. It's going to make old people more stoked or twice as stoked or you know there's going to be all these peaks and valleys whereas if you're just uh, repeating yourself you know with only a couple of exceptions you know acdc is the exception everyone always makes 
it's just not the same. It's not as exciting. There's, there's not the same sort of each victory is that much bigger when you've been along for the ride to see, <laughs> you know, these artists that you love. Um, I just thought of a really good example and it was something that I was going to talk about earlier, but I kind of, as I do, I, many things come into my head. I have a, I always say that I kind of have like a first generation Intel Mac for a brain. Like I got one stream of data and it's, and it's, and, and it can be very solid, but like, yeah. Sometimes I get caught up and I, and I always I, think of my brain like a, like a cup of water. And when you pour too much new liquid into it, some of the old liquid's going to go away. <laughs> so it's like, I can learn and process new information, but I'm forgetting old information at the same time. Yeah. I was talking to Liam about this not all that long ago. And he was talking about how Miss Machine was received, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, because calculating infinity really shook shit up in like a, um, a different way i mean it was like it was it, it happened pretty quick and i mean it was at the tail end of the 90s and like this was all like that type of stuff was being made the music was being made without being able to audition it with program drums and shit like that i mean that was yeah. ben and yeah. fucking some drummer sitting there working all that chris shit penny. Out. And yeah 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 i guess it was chris penny at the time yeah. um it was like the within a year of that i think it was the first time that i heard the term math core or math rock you know what i mean it was like yeah i think me like too. the the, yeah. the public at large kind of struggling to come up with these terms that would encapsulate or be able to say or identify what something was and then they came out with miss machine which i thought was fucking great i was like man this is this is sick it's almost like them like it's it still has all the crazy math shit but it also um has this like rock and roll thing to it too like sunshine the werewolf and um like an important of things things up. to come like on ironworks when they did black bubblegum and milk lizard which are my favorite dillinger songs but i think i know where you're going though but you know go on <laughs> well okay well liam was just kind of explaining to me that they got shit upon big time for that record and yeah. then a few years down the line possibly a few new records i mean dillinger's had a pretty interesting career right like i, I mean dude i think at one point they even put out a record on season of mist which is kind of fucking yeah. weird right you know um, yeah. but like i feel like if you just sit there and you take the hits and you just power through it eventually you develop and this is kind of what you want you develop this like weird faction of the public who pretends that they were into your first record even though they <laughs> last year you know that there's like this once you have those then you're kind of made like you yeah. get those ones that are because like that means that you've created enough of a catalog you know and that people can trust you they want to you know and metallica is the ultimate example of this you, they'll always be part of the conversation because of what they've accomplished up till this point everyone will always pay attention even if it's to say oh this is terrible they're paying attention because the band has has earned that and yeah dillinger fits into that category so well you know from a data standpoint you know miss machines their biggest selling record wow. and uh you know greg is the singer on every single record except the first one you know uh then you know the ep the early eps and obviously the patent ep but in terms of like albums it's all greg except for one record and it's just interesting how, like you said, not only do certain things get romanticized, but romanticized by people who are like 
posing. Couldn't have possibly fucking Couldn't have possibly been there. Yeah. And here's another thing that I'll throw into that argument. And there's a couple bands that fit into this example that I have personal experience with. Dillinger. Another one is Zayo. People would talk a lot about like, oh, Zayo, the original singer. And it's like, dude, Dan has been the singer on every record since 1998. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like there's two records with another singer, which both have a lot of the same songs on them. And then there's a gazillion records with the guy who's singing now. You know, Scott's been playing guitar in Zayo since 1999. Um, even the people who are the newest in that band, uh, like Jeff, the drummer, and, and Marty, the bass player, they've been in the band since 2005. So that's like 15, 16 years now. And another one is Throwdown. People talk about the original Throwdown and there's no original members left in the band and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, dude, Dave Peters has been the singer and songwriter in Throwdown since 2002. <laughs> and every record that he sings on has outsold the earlier record. And today, currently, if you go on Spotify and you look at the popular throwdown songs, every popular song is Dave on vocals. Like it's like yeah. you have to literally scroll down to like number 60 to find like an old, and yet you will- Was it Brandon Br Schipetti who was the vocalist before that? He was briefly guitar player, but it was Keith Barney who was the vocalist before yeah. that. But there is a contingent of people who will clamor for like old throwdown, real throwdown and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and here's, the, I'm bringing up all these examples because here's one thing that I want to throw and say, say publicly that I've said privately many times, a thing that people don't realize or accept or acknowledge or think about in every one of these situations, Dillinger, Throwdown, Zayo, and I'm sure a bunch of other bands, there would not be the nostalgia or the fetish for those early, early lineups and records had those quote unquote newer versions of the bands not continued forward and achieved all of the success creatively, commercially, shows, tours by every other metric. Like if you didn't have Throwdown out there on OzFest in 2004, people wouldn't be talking about Throwdown records from 1997. They just wouldn't be. And then people can say that I'm wrong and no, 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 but like, no, all this, you know, and there wouldn't be a love and fascination for calculating infinity without all the Dillinger records that came after and all. And when you think about Dillinger in your mind and you picture the band, you picture Greg and Ben, you know, yeah. Greg and Ben and Liam, like that's the core of the band. And two of those guys I just named aren't on calculating infinity. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, I, I'm deeply enjoying this, this Dillinger uh, tangent, because like, I guess maybe, before this i hadn't realized some of the types of parallels because yeah i mean naturally we want to be able to kind of compare something to something else to make sense of it you know but um like it's odd and i remember thinking it was odd whenever i saw the new promo photos of miss machine era because like greg is this like pretty fucking like jacked dude you yeah. know what i mean and he actually then because now he's more cut but then he was like yeah, but he of, just he was the hulk <laughs> it just like super terrifying you know what i mean yeah. in this way it was like maybe the one of the first times that i feel like i'd seen a dude look like that in um a, a, a band like that was cool yeah. way before whatever that the running running man band guy is now what's the <laughs> 
you know the band I'm talking about, uh, Harm's Way, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's a big fuck. Yeah, he's uh, been he's he's been memed because he's doing like the Running Man, like a. Shuffle oh yeah, yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. I think I have seen that on Twitter. Um, <laughs> anyway, but, uh, I was gonna say like Greg is, you know, and he probably like to some degree. I don't know him super well, but I've spent enough time with him to know that like he probably enjoys the fact that he makes people's like, you know kind of makes their toenails turn green because he's like sure. this handsome dude who's like kind of jack but he's like deeply artistic that child soldier creator or god record is like way artistic you know yeah. it's one of the coolest things i've heard in a long yeah, he did a hardcover book of poetry and photos <laughs> <laughs> and, you, yeah. and you expect you'd be like dude this guy yeah. looks like a dude who would be at a college bar maybe but he's yeah. not that guy it's um it's one of those things that kind of just like freaks you out and makes it all the more interesting and makes you, I mean, makes you put your chips on the table more. Speaking of Dillinger and math, I know that you are obviously a very accomplished guitar player and uh, you can get very nerdy about guitar and nerdy about guitar as it, as it pertains to Metallica and their tuning. There's a thing when it comes to tuning and specifically with like pianos, uh, there are things called temperaments and they usually have names that are like, uh, relate to math. Like there's like a, a Pythagorean temperament and uh, there's there's like specific uh, hertz that a, a, a piano string is tuned to. And then there's like a, um, a hertz, but an equal temperament. So basically like, uh, because some of these Pythagorean and these different temperaments sound real weird and sound kind of too spicy for the ear. Mm -hmm. and, um, then there's certain ones that are, uh, you know, like an equal temperament. So it would be like, for instance, A432 hertz, but equal temperament. So it doesn't sound like everything is consonant with each other. Master of Puppets is in 432 hertz. Um, so is fucking Damage Inc so is leper messiah um i just checked it just because i was like i'm pretty certain that i had to tune my guitar a little weird when i was a kid when i was learning these songs and i mean um this guitar is tuned to 432 and um another famous band that did that was pantera and i, I was asked, gonna say and that and that's a very dime bag-esque guitar that you were <laughs> that you were holding right now <laughs> yes yes okay well because so so here's here's and this is this is I'm, I'm trying to explain this in order so um yeah i talked to rex one time and um i asked him about it and he didn't have an answer for me <laughs> right and and he he said well his answer was we just wanted to sound different than all of these other bands, specifically he said Metallica. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because fucking Metallica's got a whole bunch of songs that are tuned to 432. So um, I asked Grady as well, Dimes Tech, and um, he also didn't provide an answer. He just said, I don't know, man, that's where he wanted it. And part of me is just like, dude, you work for this dude for 20 fucking years. <laughs> right. No, they, like, that's the best answer. <laughs> this, never, this never came up. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, he just, you were just like, for 20 years, you're like, okay, I'm going to just calibrate this tuner to 432. So um, that is another part of Metallica's legacy in a way where it was like some of these decisions, right? Like, tune, yes. like why? Why is Puppets in 432? Yeah. But 
um, sanitarium is in standard. And um, I mean, dude, like, check it out. I'll, I will just for um, the sake of armchair science. I'm Please, just gonna, I love the armchair science. Um, let's go and just like check this real quick. So this is. 432, right? My guitar's in 432, right? I'm gonna play, I'll play along with Sanitarium and it's gonna sound like shit. Um, you'll, it's gonna sound off, like my guitar's gonna sound flat. One of the coolest. Right, so that sounds wrong. Yeah. But then I'll go to. Uh, it's I'll weird go. that it sounds wrong because you're obviously playing the correct notes. <laughs> Le well, I mean, because it's it's you know yeah. cause it's slightly flat. You know what I mean? Yeah. But weird that some songs got this 432 treatment. Like yeah, I mean here's Leopard Messiah. Let's go to this riff. Get in there. Now let's go to like, let's go to puppets real quick, just so I'm sure everyone doesn't think I'm insane, right? I, got I, lo I love this, by the way. <laughs> let's get nerdy. That's dead end too. So uh, I don't know why. Um, it would be cool if you ever asked, like if you had Fleming Rasmussen on and you asked him, because maybe he would have an answer. Right. Because it's, because, it's because, because this doesn't, this is post kill them all then. Yes. From what I can tell, I guess I haven't done a super deep dive on every song for Ride the Lightning in a while, but from what I can tell, that's in 440. Let's check. Fuck. Let's just do it right here. Yeah, man. This is, this is why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that there is there's there's something to that. And I've heard a few different explanations that potentially when they mastered it, they, you know, did it on a tape machine that had a different RPM, but it's exactly 432 hertz. Like, yeah, that'd be a weird mistake. It'd be a, it'd be a very it, there, there'd be some incredibly like a lot of continuity in between mistakes, if that were the case. Um, let me think here. Uh, let's just do like for him and bell tolls. Oh, I can already tell that's in. You hear my guitar, how flat that is compared to that? Yeah. yeah. It's not in 432 hertz. Um, it's so crazy. How and here's another one that's weird. The thing that should not be on on the record is in D standard, but Slive they always played it in C sharp. Like uh, Binge and Purge here, I'll grab a I'll grab a C sharp guitar real quick, and you'll be like, 
it's just a weird choice it's pretend they, they could have done it like it could have be a it could have been like a singing thing for uh -huh. uh, games that kind of made it uh easier but i i mean that was this also segues into i like c sharp you know my band tunes to you know c sharp or yeah. g sharp standard like a, and that tuning just always just sounded radical to me there's something about um just tunings that just like set a mood for me you know what i mean mm -hmm. like it just it, mm -hmm. it, it, it it offers a different experience and perhaps like the 432 thing that was all they were trying to do was like they were like man that sounds cool i want to do that like uh here let's do thing that should not be so here it is on binge and purge and it sounds <sighs> That is C sharp all day long, and then let's go to the record. Um, it's gonna sound flat by a full, like by a whole. Here we go. Check it out. Right? Wow! Like, I mean, wow! Some of these choices that they ended up making, I would just like. I know. I know. You know, there's part of it you could sit there like if we we're talking about this was like Steve Howe from Yes or something like that, or like some dude who was way into science and right, like right. the occult. It might make sense because there's like there's if you look on the internet and if you deep dive on this, there's a there's a, some literature about the Grand Chamber in one of the pyramids in Giza. It's measurement being at like 432 hertz. So like I could see someone like that doing it, but Metallica was drinking beer and having sex with girls you know what i mean like they weren't <laughs> these dudes were these dudes yeah. were not like reading books about the pyramids you know so right uh, <laughs> you know. they weren't, so trying, to, they weren't trying to conjure anything uh, no than, i don't think uh, so anyway. some more beer <laughs> but that would be a great story if they were and i yeah. just want to know well the fact that it even let's say that it happened somewhat accidentally like well this sounds cool and that sounds cool I mean, certainly it's been observed and discussed at some point since then, right? Yeah. Yes. Since you maybe, maybe like, yeah, if you ever, if you ever get Fleming on or when next time you talk to Chad, maybe he could yeah. deep dive and like maybe ask Zach. I mean, because he's been around for forever, right? You know what I mean? He would have had to, like, he would have had to have been around during puppets i'm pretty sure right was he working for him during puppets the zach Harmon? um i don't know actually but yeah there's just there's so much about it i mean you know like it, it, even just from the guitar side there's certain choices in gear and um you know like i, did, I just looked and it says um since the 80s yeah <laughs> zach Harmon was <laughs> He was a character in Guitar Hero Metallica. Oh, really? That's hilarious. I didn't know that until literally right now. 
That's He's pretty an unlockable character. To unlock him, you need to get a hundred stars in a band career mode. <laughs> yeah, there's so much stuff with choices like that. That right, um, like and things and things that like change the future that may not have had much thought put into them at the time. During the puppets interview, you know that sort of roundtable thing that they have, and I think. Um, they bring in Michael Wagner and um, uh, Fleming Rasmussen, and they're kind of talking about the technological differences at the time, which um, like they went from playing the Marshall style heads to bringing in the like boogie, like Mark two C pluses and stuff. And there's just like a pretty big change in tone and stuff right in that era. And um, like there's pictures of, James with that Mark II C plus that has that Captain Crunch Crunchberry sticker on uh-huh. it. And, yeah, um, yeah. He's, he's like uh, they they had those they had those uh, tour laminates with the Metallica Captain Crunch thing on them too. Yes, and um, I'm pretty sure that the Mark series boogies had effects loops on them. And there's this weird picture where he has a chorus pedal, and it looks like it's going in the loop of the head again. I mean, like. Part of this stuff, sometimes I wondered if they were just like, man, if we put something weird in this picture, how many decades are people going? (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned something also, and this is, you know, probably more of a noob level guitar type question, but you mentioned this and I've thought about this over the years too. You mentioned how some of the tunings change live to accommodate the vocals or to make vocals easier in certain instances. And I've watched... Something on YouTube, I think, where somebody had put together like how Megadeth had tuned down like a half step or something, and they were showing like, here's what here's where Mustaine's voice was, and then they tuned down, and here's where it is, and it, and it was like remarkably different and sounded better. And obviously, you can't, as these singers who are a little bit higher register age, and you kind of tune down to accommodate it, you, you also can only tune down so far right, for that to for that trick to work, right? Yes, I think euthanasia was the first time that Megadeth tuned down to E flat, you know what I mean? And like some of those, um, like the uh, the last action hero song, the angry again, that's yeah. um, like, also what a fucking great riff that is. But totally. uh, the it's so mustaine too because it has little motifs from so many other riffs (laughs) yeah i mean it was kind of one of those things at the time where it was just a half step just put megadeth in this different mood i think they might tune down a full step now because um I played with Dirk um, beginning of last year, and I was talking to him about that. I was like, uh, what was the reason why you guys did And it was a voice thing for sure. You know, like uh, yeah. you mentioned. Um, with, a lot of, with a lot of groups. And I mean, would, cause, and obviously we're talking about heavier, thicker, crunchier metal bands, but would that trick work with like, say, a Guns N' Roses? Um, it, I think it sort of depends whether people are musicians or not, it could be something that would knock them out of the nostalgia of a song. You know mm, what I mean? They sure. might not even they might not even 
like be able to perceive exactly what's going on, but they'd be like, hmm, the song sounds different. You know, like it, yeah. um, it looks like for the most part, Metallica has since the nineties brought their most of their stuff down. Like their E standard stuff is now down um, to E flat. Uh, I know they, they kind of, they kind of do whatever they want now, but I think people have grown accustomed to hearing the first four or five Metallica records in E flat now is opposed mm -hmm. to, so it doesn't, it doesn't make them, you know, it's not jarring to them, but um, yeah, there's so much stuff like that, that um, if I were ever in a position to be like in a room with those dudes that I would, I would absolutely not ask these questions because I know that they, you know, I know they would probably find that really annoying. I wouldn't want to be that guy, you know, I would, I would, I know, want, which is tough because you want to know. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, but like, I know exactly what you mean though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. It's That's like, not what you want to do with that opportunity to be in the room. Is be correct. Like, oh, God. Yeah. But it's, especially it's, if they're just going to be like, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, and kind of look over at the security guy, like, you know get him out of here i yeah. mean i i think <laughs> there's there's so much stuff like that about their their sound that um i mean obviously from the technique standpoint you know what i mean with down picking all these eight notes and you know like this doesn't sound correct right unless it's yeah if it, if it's if you're doing it's like get out of here greyhound yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> what no warning no second chance <laughs> <laughs> uh it's good i mean it's one of those points where like, i guess uh, you and i have spent enough time listening to that we can have these sort of colloquial jokes like that and we <laughs> yeah. know exactly where it's from you know and um that's from the VH1 doc, right? You know, isn't yes. it? Yes, and, and other places, but that was the first time I ever heard it. Yeah. There's so much stuff about, oh, here's another one too. I mean, just as like a, a side note, before I knew that like it was, it, was, it was commonplace for guitarists to put tube screamers in front of their amps, this is kind of mildly nerdy, but for anyone who's like a non-musician who's listening, so you have a high gain amplifier like any one of these that you see over here and like uh -huh. uh, you put um like a lot of times uh the preamp section of an amp might have a little bit too much low end so you put a tube screamer in front of it and you're basically boosting the level which is high passing the signal it's cutting off some of the low end but also heating it up so it sounds like real aggressive you know what i mean it sounds kind of pissed so like a lot of times i think I've watched maybe just by like watching or seeing pictures of um, Headfield playing at this with this extreme angle on his pick and kind of figuring out that that maybe was a big part of the tone, some of the scratch and some of like mm. the, the like the part of the um, the the operating of the string because that's what it is. I mean, really, like there's a million different guitars out there; they're all shaped differently but they all do the same shit and like it's it's your uh physiology and different choices that make you sound different and just a little bit right here like i mean just listening like 
like a big tone change just in the side of the pick type of thing right there that has nothing to do with a fucking four thousand dollar amp it's just like yeah choice. it reminds me of uh actually one time when i interviewed mustaine um around the time of either united abominations or endgame he was talking about andy sneep and he was talking about how andy sneep was like yeah that's like an old school digging in like just how the it's not just your palm muting it's not just your down picking but it's the way that you're palm muting or down picking and how much difference that makes yeah pretty much you're playing the string you're not playing like as much as you're like i'm playing the guitar it's like you're playing the string that's your job so um yeah i mean um um het is among the most as far as heavy metal goes has like his has uh created an etiquette for playing heavy metal guitar without even talking about it you know what i mean like he just did it because everyone was like man that sounds gnarly how do i do that do and just universally hailed as the greatest rhythm player in the, yes. in the genre you know the right hand of Hetfield. Like you don't think about him shredding or whatever, but you think about that rhythm and the consistency and the feel and everything about it. Yeah, there's, and I mean, also just to, I guess, wrap that up, some of the coolest Metallica solos are fucking James solos. Like, um, right. The, uh, like, uh, nothing else matters. Puppet solo, the first puppet. Yeah. Solo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh there's another really good one that i'm missing right now there's one into uh to live is to die that's a james solo um yeah there's there's a couple that are just like almost big soaring sort of like something you would hear like um steve lukather play but like dark you know um i mean doesn't it just make you wonder too like what when he's (laughs) when he's just riffing at home (laughs) you know or when he's just like making some tapes or whatever like uh like what headfield solos have we missed just because he's not the lead player right you know one of my favorite this comes up on the podcast a lot because it's always my go-to when people bring up load and reload and either had dismissed it or, or might want to revisit it or whatever the song i always send people to first is that while torn it was like a top 10 metallica song for me and I think there's a Hetfield solo in that song. Let's take a gander. I got... Uh... Yeah, because I'm thinking... I know, yeah, it's the first puppet solo, like you said. Um, I think some of the soloing in Orion is him. Nothing else matters, obviously. There's a live video of here in 2019 in Germany. I'm going to see if he plays lead guitar. <laughs> That song's so gnarly. And there's a whole thing he does in that song with just the volume knob, right? Where he's like... I'm trying to find this spot. It's a long-ass song. Time since I've heard this song, so I, I'm having a hard time. I don't know if you've done this too, but like I realize that my brain has done sort of a data dump in the last few years where like a lot of records that I knew the order of songs, now I don't. Like I know what the first song on a record is and like the last song. Like I could tell you like on South of Heaven, you got South of Heaven and Spill the Blood. Like I, but, but I couldn't tell you the order of all. By the way, of- Spill the Blood, my all-time favorite Slayer song. 
Oh my God! I mean, dude, that is I I I completely Speaking of crazy guitar stuff, and that is, and that is a Hanneman. I mean, all you know, I think all my favorite Slayer songs are Hanneman songs, which isn't to say he didn't also write bad Slayer songs. I don't want to make it sound like Carrie just wrote the bad ones, but uh, but yeah, dude, spill the blood. It's just and also my favorite Lombardo performances in that song. Yeah, that one has the the most range of any Slayer song as far as like dynamics and the types yeah. of shit that they did. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's one of the few that you're actually going to hear an acoustic guitar. You know what I mean? Albeit mm -hmm. very low, it's still in there. Um, I feel like that song was like a precursor to um, Seasons in the Abyss, like the song Seasons in the Abyss. Because it, it has some of those same sort of yeah i could yeah which is something that they didn't do much other than those songs yeah i was thinking about that too um i mean there's there's like um there's a few of those like they aren't direct facsimiles but like um there's a lot of the south of heaven riff is sort of like the dense dead skin mask riff yeah in a way, yeah you know what no I mean? totally i know exactly what you mean yeah um like I was talking with someone about this the other day because you I'm not saying people gloss over South of Heaven, but it isn't as celebrated as Rain and Blood is. And I'm just right. kind of like, like, I mean, sure, Rain and Blood's great. It's vicious. But like that is, in my opinion, was the apex of Slayer, like really giving a fuck, like as far as they're dead, like like getting the performances super great on tape and um, like they said I've, I've seen interviews with carrie and everything where they said that that was the only time that they came into any album with a mission statement that we wanted this to be slower and different than rain and blood and, yeah uh, and just o opening with a slow song which was again bold create like challenging your audience you know they were known as the the pinnacle yeah, of speed metal but now i just sitting here sitting here and thinking and remembering it like they do just like after that they get hit you with silent scream and you're like oh okay yeah. Like, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> like don't uh, worry <laughs> we still got it boy there are some songs because i mean dude don't get me wrong seasons is equally as uh important of a record to me but like i was talking about this with somebody when we're talking about facsimile songs like spirit and black is kind of like if I had to choose between that and skeletons of society, I would take spirit and black. And I mean, they, not, not saying that they're exactly the same song, but there's like similarities between yeah. them where I'm almost like, if that song were left off of seasons, I, I sometimes wonder if it would be like a more potent record, like hallowed point is you have hallowed point and then you have born of fire, which kind of like, start similarly like i mean i know that there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this and probably in the comments six and eviscerate me and say like oh well, who are you to say that slayer should have left off a song i'm not trying to say that i'm just saying that like I, don't need I mean and there's motifs and there's you know because i was thinking about when you mentioned dillinger obviously the most memorable thing about calculating infinity is the riff in 43 percent burnt and the record when i worked with the band has a song i think it's prancer the first song that we put out that has like basically a rewrite of that riff it's not, it's not yeah and it's kind of like and i remember talking about that with ben where i was like it's smart because you're uh, a you're copying yourself so nobody can get on you for copying another band and b you know it's different enough that it's not a straight facsimile like you said but it has that 
it's almost like, and this is a totally other weird example, but um, that blues traveler song, it's like the hook draws you in. I ain't telling you no lies. I watched this whole YouTube video breaking down how the melody in that song is this very specific dating back to like classical music, like melody that does like it, it was. And then the song itself, the lyrics to that song are about how the song is tricking you <laughs> into getting oh, it stuck wow. in your head. But I, and anyway, my point bringing that up is like, there is a natural sort of, it's like the millennial whoop thing. Like people are inclined to like things that have this familiarity about it. And that's what I think was smart when Ben was doing that. I think every Dillinger album has some kind of rewrite of the 43% burnt riff somewhere, like a motif. So, I mean, you know, and then obviously guys like Mustaine where Call of Cthulhu and Hangar 18 are certainly cousins of one another. And then later, I think on Dystopia, there's some later Megadeth record where he just almost straight up just ashes in your mouth. It's done that too. Yeah. There's a riff on like the first song of dystopia. That is the ashes in your mouth riff. Um, Yeah. And then there's FFF, which is just, which is motor breath, which wasn't even a Mustaine song. It's got then it's on cryptic writings. Yeah. You can't really guess. I know what you're talking about. Yes, I do know. Yeah. Um, this one not related to any of these bands like someone was telling me about this i forget but like you know when sweet home alabama had come out it was just such a just a just a smash hit that um there were a ton of bands who kind of tried to recreate it you know that werewolf in london song it's like oh like it's like a complete copy of like it has a piano thing that occurs in the same set of bars that's like on uh, and then four horsemen just straight up has sweet home alabama in it i'm surprised they never got sued so okay so show me a, where show me where well, I'm, well well i hope i get to blow your mind with this i'm ready so obviously you know mechanics was the original version on the no life to leather demo and when, and when mustaine left and said you can't use any of my songs and they did anyway he took mechanics whole start to finish lyrics everything exactly the same from metallica and brought it into megadeth and it's on the first megadeth demo and it's on the megadeth album so metallica meanwhile changed the lyrics changed the tempo a little bit and added a bridge and called it the four horsemen and the bridge is sweet home alabama rhythmic motif is i got you i could see that and, and mustaine says that that originated he says that him and cliff were driving to band practice and they were listening to leonard skinnard and they started playing that in the middle of mechanics one day as a joke and then you know later on after he's fired from the band and they they added enough to that song to make it more of a co-write because me- mechanics and jump in the fire, the original version of jump in the fire with the original lyrics, those were like holy Mustaine songs. Like jump in the fire was a song from panic, his band before Metallica. And after he left, like they would, you know, they changed everything that, that had his handprints on it in some way. But yeah, that's, they just added sweet home Alabama to mechanics to make the four horsemen. <laughs> And I love both songs. I love the mechanics. It's pissed. And, you know, I think Four Horsemen has much better lyrics. And it's got that, like, more sort of driving, chug, galloping feel. 
but man, I also I love mechanics. I love the solo mechanics. Yeah, I agree. Because I uh, I I watched um, I watched your podcast with Flynn and um, kind of just like we talked about mechanics too. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and more so um, just like a lot about your uh, like your life and like how a lot of this music stuff um, like got you like you know reared you and kind of made you an adult like it's it's interesting to me specifically that metallica is one of your one of your favorite bands if not your favorite band and that you have so much uh you're involved deeply in a lot of these bands that have a a layered history of drug and alcohol abuse but you Mm. never you never got into it um is there like i mean like i can 100 percent say that the pantera three home videos like that stuff made me go man that is awesome and i want to smoke weed and drink yeah. beer and yeah and act like an animal like what was it that that made you able to observe the art and participate in it but not like get um into the the drugs and booze part that, that's a really interesting question um, and something I've, I've thought about to some extent, but but probably not. I don't know that anyone's ever asked me that. I think part of it, I mean, my uh, dad has been in Alcoholics Anonymous since the 80s. Um, so he was, you know, an alcoholic and a gambling addict when I was very young and, um, and has been in like the 12-step program for like literally decades now and, you know, sponsors other people. And I think... I'm drawn to extremes. You know, I love when something is a hundred percent something, you know, I often talk about that in terms of belief and meaning and attitude. Like I'm not, you know, I don't agree with what all the early emperor records are about or dark throne or something, but I love listening to those records because I love the purity of that intention you know um i may not agree 100 percent with everything the early zeo records are about but i love that like you know living sacrifice is another great example like but i love like we're about this and this is our thing and we're like committed and convicted and and i so i think as a corollary to that i've i've often found myself drawn to these larger than life characters like um you know the gallagher brothers scott wyland Lane Staley, um, people who got into partying and really let it, I mean, you can't really separate heroin from Alice in Chains' Dirt or Alice in Chains' Self-Titled. You know, like you just, you can't, like you can't, those records were not made in a vacuum, you know, like it's just, it's part of the story. And you hear, or when you watch the Alice in Chains MTV Unplugged, like you're watching someone disintegrate before your very eyes. And yet this beautiful art is coming out of it. So I think that I've, I've always been attracted to that while at the same time having a real aversion to it personally, because, and maybe this is the storyteller in me, maybe this is the, the you know, fan of cinema and literature and, and that sort of thing. I see the narrative arc I feel like I've, I've always, even before behind the music was a thing, I always had this behind the music sort of analytical mind about it. And, and I always saw 
you know, the Aerosmiths, the Guns N' Roses, the Motley's at, at one point. Uh, you know, these bands go through these arcs where they get to the other side of it and they're like, oh, I almost died and it was so crazy and things got so bad and it was all fun at first, but then it was this and whatever. And now I'm like doing yoga and I'm vegan and I'm like, you know what I mean? And like, we're making this new record and whatever. Like, I felt like I saw enough of those stories and then certainly the stories that end the other way, the Cobains and the Jim Morrisons and the, you know, the people where the, the Lane Staley's were the the vices, they never got to the other side of it, you know? And so I, I think my attitude was always, well, I'm just going to skip ahead towards like the later part of the movie. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm, I, I've lived vicariously enough through relating to the art that these people make while under the influence or struggling or whatever, you know, as much as it's fun for me as a fan to see Liam Gallagher at MTV VMAs spitting beer all over the stage and, um, you know, or to think, or to, to, to see interviews with Noel Gallagher when they ask him about the production on Be Here Now and he's like, cocaine. <laughs> we were, it sounds like that because we were on so much cocaine. Like I'm, I, I guess it's kind of like a, a there but by the grace of God go I kind of scenario where because this is another thing I should definitely say part of my apprehension, reluctance, determination to stay away from all of that stuff is knowing that I am extremely into things and I get really passionate and nerdy about anything I'm into that drugs and alcohol would fall into that category. So I wouldn't just be someone that's like, hey, I'll like do a little bit of this here and there. Like I'd become like a Scott Wyland. <laughs> <laughs> like I, you know, I kind of know myself well enough to know that there's no, and then this is I'm fully 100% legalization always have been. You know, I'm very much libertarian in the sense that I believe people should, you know, I believe in property rights, and I believe your first piece of property is yourself, and you're, you know, you can do whatever you want within that realm. And that's not even me saying like, yeah, destroy yourself if you want to. Liam being a mutual friend of ours, Liam Wilson, he's very into psychedelics and he's done like all sorts of and i'm super fascinated by that i love talking about it with people like him who are knowledgeable and experienced i just know that for me i just don't ever get halfway about anything you know like i got really into krav maga at one point and i was going four or five days a week for like three years straight and then just stopped going all together <laughs> you know it's like which isn't which i don't necessarily recommend you know what i mean it's like there's it's not necessarily healthy to go four or five days a week and it's also not you know i'm not stoked that i just stopped but i recognize that about my personality and it's like yeah i you know i have to be careful even with video games and like anything because it's just like i started playing assassin's creed valhalla which i love but it's also like the longest game ever and it's like oh man this is <laughs> it's so perfect for my personality because it's so easy to get addicted and like obsessive about like, I got to do every single side quest. I got to, you know, so yeah. to answer your question, I, I think that that's what's kept me away. And yet at the same time, I've been able to, and I'm sure there's some childhood stuff in there and parent stuff and all that, but I feel like I have an understanding of a Hetfield, you know, some of these larger than life characters who have struggled with this very on the ground, um, stuff you know and 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 again it's not to say that people who 
can partake in moderation or who can get out of their minds here and there or got out of their minds for a few years in a row. I don't have any value judgment on that. Um, I just recognize. And then at this point, you know, I'm in my forties. So it's like, um, I'm not going to start now. <laughs> this, is when, yeah, this, is this is when everyone's quitting. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, there's, there's, uh, there's another part of it too, that is probably, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about it, like, um, back then when, uh, physical media like magazines cds records and stuff like that were still the way that people consume music naturally there was more money to go around and people could afford to like they like had the they they had the capital to sort of be maniacs you know what i mean mm, like sure yeah. um you had the ability to have a, a killer mansion and you know be a complete mess and also um in this day and age like you know especially if a, a band like mine like we're gonna for the foreseeable future we're gonna be a support act so we're gonna have to go in and load all of our shit and get our shit off right where is there even room to get out of your mind no fucking yeah. time really um yeah i mean although i have done it in the past and somehow made it work i'm definitely not gonna do it anymore um i've got like this um this February, I'll have about I'll have three years about uh, without booze, and then oh wow, been about it's probably closer to four, maybe a little over four without um, any drugs, illicit or even um, like weed. Which again, I've had to observe sort of the the same things is that I I I do like to be extreme about things and hang out in them and weed for instance you know there's a i i'm also for it's for it being a, a legal thing and for you know for non-violent drug offenders to not spend 20 fucking years in prison to oh. you know I mean, I'm, I'm all about that but you know what i had to observe is weed is like a big time tool for me when i you know one of the reasons that i've taken up a, a extended break from it is like when I smoke weed, I feel like I am getting a mirror of myself and everything that every deficiency I have and everything that I need to work on. That's what like weed does to me, which makes it not an enjoyable experience. But I do need to heed the fact that that's what it's doing. It's not a bad thing. It's just like, huh? Yeah, I should probably spend time fixing these things, you know, and mm. like uh, possibly the experience of smoking weed like I, I wouldn't have been. I would have made certain choices that have uh, affected my life positively now if I hadn't had an experience a few years ago when I revisited it, where it was just kind of like, man, you are fucking up and you need to like, get it going. So um, I don't think all drugs are like that for sure. You yeah, know and I mean? this obsessiveness serves us well, obviously, because it's made you incredible at your instrument, you know, and it's, it makes me a workaholic and it makes, you know, it makes us driven. It's just when we park, like you said, living in those certain worlds, <laughs> these are not the worlds to park yourself in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, on a, on a more contemporary note, you know, cause like I, I've talked about this a few different times, like, you know, cause I'm I, to some degree, I guess the guitar player that I'm known to be, I'm like, you know, I played with these death metal bands and stuff like that. So people automatically, you know, maybe assume that, um, 
extreme music or like real cred shit is the hill that I want to die on, which could not fucking be any, any further from the case. Like when I hear friends of mine, especially ones who are in extreme kind of metal bands, bitch about metalcore or whatever. I'm like, dude, shut up. Like metalcore is the best goddamn thing that's happened to the economy of heavy music in general. Like, cause, cause dude, yeah. a normal kid is not going to go straight to hate of hate eternal fucking King of all Kings or whatever. You right. know what I mean? Gonna start out with kill switch engage and mm -hmm. dying and all this stuff and then once and even and even, and, and even before kill switch engage and as dying they might start out with black veil brides there you go falling in reverse you know and there we go there's a great example too like um i got a lot of friends i don't know ronnie radke at all but i got a lot of you know like you know death metal dudes who would say this that, and the other thing and i was like dude i don't know that guy but i kind of like him you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I like, I like that he is unapologetically who he is. And like, um, there was this thing a while back, you know, it was like Soundwave or something or some festival in Australia where the front of house guy was like, yeah, uh, yeah, blowing. yeah. And he fucking shit on the dude publicly in front of the crowd. And I saw all these press sites pick it up and try to, you know, use it as an opportunity to make him the villain. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, man, you know, and you're looking at it thinking how many times have how many band dudes wanted to do that yeah, <laughs> justifiably exactly yeah. yeah where i've been like you don't know what the fuck you're doing and you're ruining this thing yeah. that we spent for all like, these people that i flew 18 hours to get yes here. yeah yes exactly i mean um and you could say some of the same types of things um about a, a lot of different artists you know what i mean like mm -hmm. uh, get stressed and um have act i don't want to i don't even want to use the the term acting out that have that have um expressed their displeasure with something and then took the the heat for in a way that i don't really think is fair and back to something that you said a minute ago um uh with reference to the the uh the ethos or maybe the lyrical content on emperor records or um mm -hmm. really the first wave of black metal in general i mean dude we are talking about teenagers man. right we are For talking sure. about fucking kids yeah who made some music and yeah they said you know they said and believed some unsavory shit like for instance i was sitting there and watching this satiricon documentary where um you know a lot of it there weren't subtitles so i can't tell what they're saying but they're going and visiting these auditoriums or like outdoor amphitheaters where hitler spoke and everything like that so yeah i mean it's 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 a little yeah it's a little hard one to 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 yeah. get, to get behind you know but this fucking documentary came out in like 2001, you know, and I'm right. like, and I'm right. like, when I see press sites in this day and age, all of a sudden go, well, like these black metal bands, th you know, they, they kind of like, they believe some sketchy stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, dude, why now? Why now? <laughs> yeah. Why not yeah. fucking tw the last 20? And also, and also, also, you're totally you were totally fine with burning churches down and murdering people uh you know <laughs> <laughs> but you know varg makes a white power role-playing game and <laughs> that's a bridge too far for you
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, dude, there's, like there's, some, there's some stuff about, um, <laughs> you know, the way things are now where, um, you know, where it, whether it's just sort of like shitting on a type of music, shitting on a type of artist or shitting on um, anything in general that people just want to be seen doing it. You know what I mean? They want to be seen on Twitter doing it. They don't, uh, not not to borrow a a dumb phrase, but it it is its own form of like creative virtue signaling. Big way to say, because I think that sucks. That means I'm better. I'm cool. I'm distinguishing myself by what I don't like. And it's a lot harder. And and this is something I've struggled with getting older. Like it's much more challenging and much more courageous to put yourself out there, defining yourself by the things that you love instead of defining yourself by everything you hate. It's easy to sit around and be like, that sucks. That sucks. That sucks. That's easy and goes unchallenged most of the time, but to go out and advocate and be like, I love this. I love this. I love this. It's a lot harder. Yeah, I mean, for the the bulk of my internet activity is based on, hey, check out this band that I think is killer, or yes, hey, here's a guitar thing I did, or I have appreciated that about you for sure. Well, I mean, because because here's the here's the thing about it, like, um, you know, I'm a 38 year old Hesher uh, that has, you know, like I've, I've got uh, made some, uh, I mean not any sort of like crazy mistakes in my life, but I'm definitely not perfect. And so I don't really feel like I'm in a position to offer fucking people advice. I mean, so I certainly don't want to take the few little portals that I have on the internet and try to do that. And um, the other part of that is, you know, like I grew up in the central Valley in California, largely Hispanic area. Right. You know what I mean? So, um, then join the military and like that's just everyone that's every type of person that from the united states and beyond i mean like um like every every type of lineage you could think of you know what i mean and like you get to understand how people are just regionally and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so like i don't fear anyone or like really anything because i've just like I've, i feel like from a very young age the military was an extension of high school so like you know like i like I, I i seldom give my opinion on stuff and i and i and i don't find myself like um like you know there's a few places in the united states where i've ever felt unsafe and chicago is one of them chicago's just got kind of a gnarly thing but like dude i have been in gas stations in like little rock or somewhere in Alabama, right? Where it's like a, like a largely black population. And I'm in there buying some, you know, like something to drink and like, you know, there's a, a, a bunch of different like black folks in there. And the, I'm with a dude who like a month ago was on Twitter going like black lives matter, but he's fucking like, man, this is really no, right. This right. is super sketchy in here. I'm like, shut up. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Like I, that is the type of shit. I mean, that's another level of like virtue signaling. Like there's, there's a, there's a whole host of people out there who just want to be seen doing something, but they really aren't that thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And you, uh, well, we were talking about comedy before. Are you a, a fan of Anthony Jeselnik? I have heard about uh, this dude a whole bunch. He's uh, one of my, he, he's probably my favorite of like Norm Macdonald's my favorite standup of all time. Uh, yeah, Jeselnik's probably my favorite standup of like the last 
you know, decade or so, but he has a, and I don't, I don't want to ruin it. Um, and it's a whole special that I would highly recommend, but it's called thoughts and prayers. And I'll write it down in my notes. I have, I have a whole running note of like movies that people tell me to watch. And then <laughs> nice. Yeah. Like- Anthony Jeselnik thoughts and prayers. I believe it's on Netflix and his, you know, the gist of his premise about thoughts and prayers. And this was, I feel like the phrase has finally been sort of banished. But back when that was like the number one thing is he was like, you know, he was talking about the Boston Marathon uh, terror attack and how all these people were immediately on Twitter, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And he's like, people say they're doing that for the victims of the tragedy. But guess what? The victims aren't on Twitter. Correct. In the ambulance being rushed to the hospital. (laughs) what, What you're really doing that for is you're saying, hey, everybody, don't forget about me. Like, I know there's this big thing happening yeah. right now, but, 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 but how do I find a way to me? make this about me? Yeah. yeah. How, how can I be included here? And, you know, the disingenuousness of that and the, um, yeah, the idea that, that this sort of the slacktivism or Twitter activism or whatever you want to call it, where people are like, I'm going to post about how people should do things. And that's what <laughs> I did today. You know? <laughs> I had a, a client, uh, for lack of a better word, I always, that word always feels weird, but, somebody I managed for a long time and his work day would be like, you know, spending an hour or two telling me what I should do. And then he's like, our day's work (laughs) (laughs) manager for two hours about all the stuff you should be doing. I'm going to go shopping or take a nap or whatever, you know, and it's like, (laughs) and not to say there wasn't work that got accomplished in those settings because there was, but, but overall, like just that attitude of like, done my part by telling someone to do their part yeah i mean um, i just i I think about this too the i was born in 82 i think it was my generation and like you know the like let's just say 79 to 80 and like that range like late 70s to 80s i think we were the first group of kids who truly like grew up and didn't give a fuck about people being gay and didn't have any sort of like we we weren't tethered down to any ideas about race i mean because like we grew up with bands like propagandi and like all of this other stuff that like like i mean i'm not sitting here trying to make it sound like a punk rock guy because i'm 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 not no i I know what you mean though like it was that stuff was all part of the discussion it wasn't like yeah and i mean like i mean in a way or or you know if there were a kid, you know what I mean? Like, I, I know that it, um, I, I, cause I have a girl that I grew up with who works at a, she's a, she, she's a teacher at some school in San Jose and says that like, you know, she's been doing it for like 10 or 12 years now and says that it has been commonplace for there to be openly gay kids at school, which I think is a great thing. You know what I mean? That some kid isn't feeling like he's got to hide it and kill you know, like want to kill himself because totally. he's bullied or whatever. But I mean, I think that generally speaking, you know, growing up, in the Fresno, California area and everything like that, where I grew up, you had, for the most part, every type of folk. I mean, like every, every, every Hispanic kids, black kids, Asian kids and stuff like that. And then you also had like a a hot, it was a hotbed of white evangelicals. So you had like, like maybe because of that at an early age, I was just like, man, 
I don't care about any of that stuff. And I like, I would just prefer that no one even acknowledged it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, and for a time, I think maybe it stayed that way. It's just become such a way for people to ingratiate themselves with a group of people or a type of fan beast to take a stance on any of that shit now, or it's just like, dude, shut the fuck up. Just like, like, I mean, no, I mean, I guess I'm, I guess I'm, I like discourse. I like freedom of speech and people should be able to go out there and like, you know, virtue signal and do whatever it is that they want. But um, I, I hope that it's not just you and me who see that shit and are just like, yeah, that's dumb. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I would like to think that there's a silent majority that is, uh, you know, first polarized as everything is. I like to think that there's a, a large amount of us who aren't, who don't see everything through a purely ideological lens that where it's team sports. What does my team think about this thing that happened today? That, you know, that it's the empty can rattling the most. I forget what the percentage is, but it's like, it's only, it's a tiny sliver of the population that's even on Twitter. And then a tiny sliver of the people on Twitter who tweet a lot. <laughs> so it's like, you know, that tends to give us an inflated sense of, uh, you know, there was a thing yesterday, for example, where Anthony Mackey did an interview with Variety and they asked him about, you know, uh, shippers, people who want uh, Sam Wilson and Bucky Barnes to be lovers, to be a couple or whatever. And he didn't say like, I hate that. Like he, he gave like a pretty long and winding and reasoned thought out if imperfect answer about it. Right. And immediately just, he's a trending topic on Twitter yesterday. He's being roasted. You know, he said the wrong thing. He shouldn't have said anything at all, or he should have said this. And just to take back a step back for the macro overview and go like, guys, this is black captain America, <laughs> you know, like still not good enough, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like we I, can't I, even I take you. a breath to go like, man, this is amazing progress. And not only that, but in the, whole series that they did about him taking the mantle of being black captain america they deal with all the implications positive and negative surrounding that and it's like this whole big you know kids are watching this like big in-depth conversation about race on that show but the star and it wasn't even that he said something bad it's that he said something like imperfect and it's like man but then also taking the step back to go that's a percentage of people on twitter which itself is only a percentage of people in the world and, uh, you know, these kind of, these mini controversies, and obviously on the right, like they cook up things that are even more ridiculous uh, or as ridiculous. I'd like to think that most people miss both of those, you know, that they're yeah. not even aware <laughs> that these are like controversies <laughs> for a few days. I mean, it's it's insane to think that there are people out there who just wake up and they're just ready to go at it. Like, I mean, there's there's certain people that I follow on Twitter just to kind of like study. Like, for instance, Candace oh, Owens. Candace Owens, I'll I'll just follow her just to see like the amount of times that like the amount of time that she will spend that she will allocate daily just to getting into like a. a an argument with Chrissy Teigen or fucking Cardi B or whatever, you know what I mean? And, and, um, on the flip side of that, like seeing someone like Chrissy Teigen, like, you know, 
virtue signal and try to cancel people you know what i mean and has her target cookware line but then and you know like you you find out you know a whole bunch of things get unearthed that she's just as fallible as all of the people that she tries to yeah cancel. exactly you're um, human yeah so i mean totally. i think the weird thing about this is too is it ties into the band thing like um there's i i heard someone talking about this i've heard a few different people talking about this on either uh, side politically not that cryptocurrencies like it is as, as, as odd as it is it seems like the cryptocurrency thing is being politicized now like you'll totally. see something where it's like it's ted cruz is like ted cruz is like bitcoin sounds like a great thing and then you have um uh, elizabeth warren she was sitting there and making it sound like it's um you know it is a cryptocurrency is basically like this this haven for different types of right-wing criminals and stuff. And I've started to sit here and think about as these people get canceled, right? They don't mm-hmm. disappear. They, you know, they, they don't get to use PayPal or oftentimes they've lose their ability to use normal banking institutions, you know? So like, that's why all of this stuff is like, there's this parallel world kind of growing mm-hmm. alongside ours with cryptocurrencies. And as it relates to bands, I've wondered, more and more now as 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 the the opportunities for bands to go out and get people to participate in their art like if they've they've been throttled like i wonder how long it will be till we see a metallica non-fungible token you know like especially now that they own all of their own shit you know what i mean like what what they they even bought a pressing plant Yes, they literally, they literally manufacture the vinyl on their record label. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and like, how rad that you get to that point where you're like, you you just wake up one morning and you're like, what if we did this, like gold and black and blue splatter, and then you just start like, oh, you we'll just can because you're in charge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I, I always I always make this joke too. I love that, you know, when Metallica renegotiated with Elektra at some point in the '90s and was like we'll get we'll get our masters back in 2014 or 2012 or whatever it was and you just know that there were just some executives in the 90s that were like yeah sure we'll be in flying cars by then who cares (laughs) yes and um you know egg on on them egg on their face um i was thinking like at this point i i don't know what the perceived like i still I think I understand NFTs and I heard someone explain it the other day that related it to video game skins, like a call of duty thing or whatever. Like the idea of the NFT has been around for a while. And like the, the youngest generation right now, like your kids, my kids are probably at the, they're more equipped to understand the value of an NFT than say you or I, because we are like, well, what, what do I even own here? But, um, someone spent like, 450 grand on a specific type of that Nyan cat gif, which is, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a cat that's got like a pop tart body. And, um, and it's like, a I think rainbow. I saw an, an article. About it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I guess from what I understand that those, that Nyan cat thing is, uh, it's popular in the gamer community, right? Like it's like, it, and so owning that thing would be like a cred move, you know, like, it's like, well, I've got, I've got the thing. And at this point, it seems for how long, (laughs) right. But like, it seems like, you know, only the, like 
some of the biggest acts, right? Like those are the only ones who are kind of like people would be able to see real value in their shit. And I was thinking about it. It's like yeah. there's a way for you to get yeah. some Metallica, like you know, the Crunch Berries Mark II C plus sticker, but like yeah. you know what I mean? I want, yeah, I want to. Yeah, I want to buy the the Kill Bon Jovi non fungible <laughs> sticker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would probably do Get it. Finger on the dartboard. <laughs> I would see. Yes, yes. There we go. I would see more. I could see value in that right away, as opposed to getting uh, the Lindsay Lohan NFT or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, fuck, dude. This has been great. I know I could probably we could probably spend another three hours doing. We really could, uh, and in fact, I I would like to have you on. I, I don't. I haven't had any regulars yet. I've had a uh, Doc Coyle came on twice, but I'd love to have you on regularly there's always a, i've been thinking about actually i asked this i have there's like a speaking destroy facebook group and i asked this in there a long time ago and everybody was like yeah yeah totally and i just never did it but i'm thinking about you know because every episode is a guest and i try to get new episodes out on mondays and then i was thinking about adding like a thursday where it's just news because there's you know even if it's just like a 20 minute episode or something there's always metallica news of some sort um you know today a bunch of festivals got announced um yeah i saw hellfest it looks like there's just every band ever is on. yeah i saw one of the dudes from trivium tweeted like good luck anybody who's gonna try to get a bus or crew in <laughs> in that region <laughs> that that month but yeah but I, but even that it's like i don't it's like ah, how do i want to just do 20 minutes of just me talking so um yeah it would be cool to have somebody or a couple somebody's to cruise in once in a while yeah. make something like that happen i mean yeah definitely i would love to um and if you get a chance and you talk to chad and you could in like yeah. just clip it in there on an email like just be like 100 percent. i would drop him an email and also i'm uh 432 hertz thing why why is it on oh i've got a recording of it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah this was uh this was fun dude i mean like I was looking forward to just talking to you in general because I mean, like, I, likewise, um, yeah. Well, and it's, and after I, you were on, you were on Flynn's thing. That also, you know, I've heard your name for a while. I actually didn't connect the dots with the Sprinter thing, which is pretty funny. But you know, I've known <laughs> of you and knew who you were, obviously, and your bands and stuff over the years. But yeah, I was, uh, you know, after checking out, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I heard all of it, but hearing most of the Flynn podcast, I was like, yeah, yeah this will be cool. 